Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Samin Nosrat is on the podcast today. Queen of the kitchen, queen of the cookbook shelf, queen of the written word, queen of our hearts. <laughs> queen of salt, fat, acid, heat. Hi, Ann Friedman. Welcome back to America. Hi, Aminatu. So welcome to the tail end of 2018. <laughs> Girl. It's that whole thing where like the year ends before the year really ends because like oh, yeah. people, The year ends yeah. on the day that you take off for Thanksgiving. Everybody knows this. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you that we're still working and it's after I know, Thanksgiving. But I'm saying that like, you know, Q4 is not for the faint of heart. It's mm-hmm. hard. It's hard work. I always have such high ambitions for Q4. Like, that's where I'm going to, like, really analyze how I spent my time and money in the past year. And I'm going to be, like, very strategic about how I spend the next year. And, like, Mm-mm. I'm really going to, like, yeah, never. That's it, for it Q3 never that of way. next year. Q3 of oh next year God. is when I will analyze everything that's going on right now. Shout out <laughs> to being an emotional post-processor. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> the latest processor is, like, truly both of us. Anyway, what's let, going on today? <laughs> let me tell you, I am so excited about our guest today. She is somebody that we both dearly love and admire. Samin Nosrat is on the podcast uh, today. Queen of the kitchen, queen of the cookbook shelf, queen of the written word, queen of our hearts. <laughs> queen of salt, fat, acid, heat. She's such a babe, Anne. Not to like, you know, objectify her, but like, I love her brain. During like the run up to our fall tour, I watched Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. It is truly a vehicle for joy. Like, you know, at the end of a stressful day, watching Samin enjoy food, enjoy like being a person who hangs out with other people who enjoy food, being a teacher about principles of food. Like every every aspect of her Netflix show is like truly life-giving and life-affirming. And also like this might sound weird. I just love watching her eat. Uh, it's not weird at all. I love watching her eat. I love watching her pick vegetables. I just really enjoy like all of Samin's like work products, the entirety of it, from the teaching to the cooking, an important thinker and writer, and just like the most, the cook of like mo- the most delicious things. And she makes you feel like you can do it too, which is wild. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I would also say too that like she's someone who really lived Shine Theory in such a great way. I mean, her the Salt Fat Acid Heat cookbook was a collaboration with the illustrator Wendy McNaughton, who we love and who has love been on the Wendy. show. I really think of Samina as someone who is also a big part of food communities, a big part of like writers' communities, is someone who is very quick to champion 
other people who are doing all kinds of things that are related to, and sometimes not related to the work that she's doing. And that's something I also really admire about her. So uh, I think you'll enjoy listening to this. I a thousand percent fangirl most of the time. It's not my best like journalism work, I will say. Because <laughs> um, the whole time she's like, please talk to me more. I, like, and she could read the cookbook and I would be into it. That's because the cookbook <laughs> is good. <laughs> the cookbook is great. I think you'll love it. Here we go. I'm Samin Nasrat. I'm a cook and a writer and a wackadoodle. <laughs> Hi, Samin. Thanks for coming on Call Your Girlfriend. Uh, life dream come true. We've been talking about you for like forever on this show. So. I, I hear. So I hear. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here. Well, you have a lot happening. You're the author of my favorite cookbook. And you have an amazing special on Netflix. Can you tell me a bit more about about the cookbook? Like, why are you writing a cookbook? How was the process? Awful. Did you love it? Like, <laughs> tell me everything. Like, how does one wake up and say, I'm going to write a cookbook? Um, it was a slow wake up over 18 years. <laughs> I So when I was in 10th grade, I had uh, an English teacher who taught me to love poetry. We kept journals in his class. And he was like, you can write. And before that, because I'm immigrant kid, child of immigrants, like I was like, okay, going to be a doctor. And so I was on this path to be an orthopedic, pediatric yeah, orthopedist. immigrant jobs. Yeah. Doctor. Engineer. Lawyer, lawyer. Engineer. What's the fourth one? In my part, you can be a banker. Oh, oh, I don't know anyone yeah. in bankers. Like you can yeah. be a banker. I always but just say three. I think that's like in the 80s when banker was cool. Oh. Like I don't think banker is cool anymore. I don't know about that. Yeah. Okay. So the three immigrants. Three. Ours were engineer, doctor, and lawyer. So I was firmly on the doctor path. And then, um, and I was then derailed by Thomas Dorman, who I believe now looking back was the first feminist I ever met. Wow. Yeah. He was also our cross country coach. And like, he he was like, he gave me my first subscription to the New Yorker. And he was like, you can write. And so by the time I finished 11th grade, I was like, I'm going to be an English major. I want to be a writer. So I went to college in Berkeley to, and I studied English to be a writer. And then I um, sort of like a series of serendipitous events brought me to Chez Panisse Restaurant, Alice Waters' incredible, you know, institution that's almost 50 years old now. Wow. And I... Love you, Alice Waters. Yeah. And I... Um, she was shading me on my Instagram yesterday. <laughs> I posted oh a God, picture. Alice I posted a picture of some really beautiful lettuces, and she was like, "But are they local and organic?" <laughs> I'm like, "This is not for me. It doesn't have salmonella in it. Be happy, Alice." It was so funny, <laughs> and like, I just, I, I came into this restaurant. I asked for a job as a busser, and pretty immediately, I was completely overwhelmed with. My, just sensory delights, really. And also as an overachieving immigrant child who had only knew, like, that the only way to, like, strive for acceptance was to be the best at anything, mm-hmm. I, fe- I felt like I had found my people because everyone who worked there was just excellent. The bussers, the dishwashers, the, you know, the servers all had other lot. They were not only these incredible professional servers at, like, a world-class restaurant, but there was also a woman who rode in the female Tour de France. There was, like, an incredible, you know, guy who ran a band 
who toured all over the country and played, you know, on the like Tonight Show. There was an amazing Harvard trained architect who just tended bar for fun. Like there were all of these incredible people. And it really, for the first time, I was like, I'm I'm amongst my people, like crazy overachievers. I love that. <laughs> but hold on. I want to ask you more about like how, like, so you asked for a job to be a busser at Chez Panisse. Like, did you go eat at the restaurant and it was amazing and you were like, I must work here? Yeah, so I grew up in San Diego and my mom is an amazing cook and it was really important for her to cook Iranian food for me and my brothers to sort of immerse us in our culture and get us to know, introduce us to our culture. So I mostly ate amazing home-cooked food my childhood and then I also had some pizza, some Chinese food, <laughs> some Mex- a lot of Mexican food. But never, we were never sort of geared toward fancy restaurants. So when I moved to Berkeley and people were like, there's an amazing restaurant here, a famous restaurant. I was like, what's a famous restaurant? You know, it just didn't register at all. I didn't understand. So it went kind of in one ear and out the other. And then my sophomore year, I fell in love. And my boyfriend was from the Bay Area and he'd always wanted to eat at Chez Panisse. So we saved up um over the course of seven months. We had this little box and we'd bet each other and then whoever lost the bet would put the money in the box or like laundry quarters or whatever. (laughs) And we went to eat there and it really, at that time, it was, you know, consistently being called the best restaurant in the country. It had been open for 28 years and it was just, it was this incredible, beautiful temple of sensory delights and you go in and it feels like you're in the most beautiful home of one of your friends for like warm copper on the walls and beautiful flower arrangements and the food was great but it was not necessarily better than like I grew up eating great food so it was not that the food was so amazing but just I felt so cared for in this way And I think in a lot of ways, when you pay to go out to eat to like a fancy white tablecloth restaurant, you're paying for all of that attention. And that felt really good. And I was like, I remember I was 19, I was wearing black tank top and my denim skirt. And we just were like, what is this? And the dessert was chocolate souffle. So when um, the woman brought it to us, she said, oh, have you ever had souffle before? And I said, no. And she said, would you like me to show you how to eat it? And I said, yeah. So she said, you poke a hole in it with your spoon and you pour in this raspberry sauce and that way every bite has sauce. So I did it and she said, how is it? And I was like, oh, I was like, it's good. I was like, but you know what would make it even better? <laughs> because it didn't even occur to me that like, that was totally the rudest thing of all time to suggest to somebody. I said, oh, I would love a glass of cold milk because you know, like, Warm brownie, cold milk, warm chocolate chippy. It's like a classic thing. Warm chocolatey thing, cold milk. And she was like, you want milk? (laughs) And she laughed and I said, yeah. And so she brought me a glass of milk and she brought us each a glass of dessert wine to sort of teach us the refined accompaniment. And what I didn't know then and didn't occur to me till years later was that in fine dining, it's considered like babies only drink milk after 10 a.m. So, in, and when I, you know, when you go to Europe and you order a, a cafe latte at like 4 p.m., they know you're American because only American, like that's for breakfast unless you're American. <laughs> so uh, it was very uncouth. So I was just so enchanted by this. And I always worked throughout college. So I wrote a letter to the restaurant asking for a job. And when I brought it in, they said, oh, you have to bring that to the floor manager. And so they brought me over to the floor manager's office. And when she opened the door, it was the souffle lady. 
And so we but kind of like instantly recognized each other. And I think, you know, in retrospect, she was probably really, as, as many restaurant people are, was like desperate. Probably someone had just quit or something. She's like, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> so I started busing tables the next day. And then pretty immediately within, the, I think, three weeks, I was begging them to teach me how to cook. Because you're always walking through the kitchen. And the cooks are just, again, I was so young. And I didn't come from a fancy world. And so this was really enchanting and inspiring and it just made me want to be part of it and the cooks there it's really the rare restaurant that exists for its cooks so they're kind of at the top of this like respect pyramid and they were all honestly like to me in that moment they would wear their like white coats and I'd walk by and they'd smile and it was like ding like their teeth would like shimmer it was like a cartoon (laughs) and I just wanted to know what they knew and I wanted to yeah, I wanted to learn, you know, to be like them. And at the same time I was studying English, I was read, getting ready to like graduate and apply for MFA programs in poetry, which are $90,000. And like, I didn't have $90,000 and like being a poet doesn't prepare you for any like financial stability. <laughs> so I was like, maybe I need a skill. So I begged them and I was really persistent and eventually they broke down and allowed me to have an internship. So I started coming in to the meetings, the menu meetings, which began at 2 p.m. And every day the menu there changes and sometimes it's French food or Italian food or Moroccan food or I don't know, your grandma's fried chicken from the South. And yet somehow nobody ever looked at a recipe. Every day they were assigned new things and they'd go and make a beautiful dinner for 100 people. But no one ever was like, let me consult how many cups of flour or whatever. It was all by the senses. And I didn't understand how I knew nothing and they seemed to know not only everything but anything, how to make anything. And like I couldn't tell the difference between parsley and cilantro. They would send me to get parsley and I'd come back with cilantro. Eventually I learned like the trick for me was before I knew which was which, I would just put one of each in my pocket. (laughs) So if they were like, (laughs) then I'd be like, pull the other one out. (laughs) Over time I saw this pattern that no matter what we were cooking, you know, they were always referring to these four elements to salt, fat, acid, and heat to guide them. And we always salted the meat the night before cooking it. We always, you know, for butter on the pastry side, they always kept it cold so it would remain in chunks in the pastry dough and make flaky dough. But on the savory side, we'd always heat the pan and heat our oil before we put food in so you'd get a crispy, crispy edge. Or we always, every single thing, there's so much tasting. And then even right before you serve it, everyone gathers around and tastes one bowl of soup before the night begins or one plate of meat or one plate of whatever. And you're always talking about how to make it just right and how to adjust it. And the words that we always were using were salt, fat, and acid. And so, you know, things needed a little squeeze of lime or a little bit of goat cheese to like perk it up with the acid. And heat was maybe to me the most overwhelming one. And... That one really clicked for me when one day we ran out of stove space and they told me to build a fire in the fireplace and cook my soup over a fire. And I was like, I don't understand. (laughs) Like how, do not compute. (laughs) You know, like how can I, you know, stove, you can turn it up and down, but a fire is just burning. Like how do I control it? And I realized eventually that it doesn't matter like if you're cooking over a fire or a stove or an oven, it's what's happening in the pot that you have to pay attention to. And so I kind of had this light bulb moment and I went to the chef and I was like, oh, I see this pattern, salt, fat, acid, heat. And he was like, yeah, duh, we all know that. And by now I'd been cooking for like a year and a half. 
So I felt really betrayed. I was like, why didn't anyone tell me? And he's like, oh, we cooks just know that. And I said, it's not in any of the books. You know, your books have recipes, but you don't use recipes. And he just was like, this is how we cook. And so at that point, I was like, I'm going to write a book about this one day. And that became the framework that I filed everything that I learned into. And then eventually the language that I taught younger cooks how to cook with. And then I started teaching cooking classes. And eventually, you know, I never lost the dream to write. And by now, I'd taken some classes with Michael Pollan at the journalism school at Berkeley. And he really encouraged me to write. And I met this incredible community of journalists, of young, like I have a journalism peer group now because of that. And so they were really supportive. And um, he just was like, this is your book, go make it. And I was terrified because I knew it wouldn't be a book that had pretty pictures. I didn't, you know, like beautiful glossy food photos because this was about ideas more than it was about how to make the perfect, I don't know, spinach salad or something. So um, pretty immediately I knew I wanted to have illustrations, both because I didn't want you to feel bound to one version of a dish and also because I wanted to teach you ideas. And by now I'd been obsessed with the work of Wendy McNaughton, the incredible illustrator. So I wrote her a letter begging her to do it. And and she and she I still have the email where and the subject line was like you might think I'm stalking you, <laughs> and she said and she said yes and so we had this incredible collaboration and it turned out she didn't know anything about cooking so along the way I taught her how to cook and we made this book together which was a really long and hard process but also I'm so happy it's done and I'm so proud. <laughs> First of all, I could listen to you talk all day. I think that it's uh, very wild that you don't have a podcast. Um, Somebody should fix that. I don't know if you remember this, but the first time that you cooked for me was at this, like, uh, we were at an Oscar party. (laughs) And you made, like, a Caesar salad and grilled chicken and there were potatoes. It was, like, like three super simple, like, three things. To this day, it is still the best chicken I've ever had. It is the best Caesar salad I've ever had and the best potatoes I ever had. And that was like for me the day that I fell in love with you because I grew up like sometimes going to fancy restaurants. Like my dad had a fancy job. So we like, I have been in like fine dining. I have like, we've traveled a lot and I like to eat, but I've never been impressed by like restaurant culture or cooking culture, especially now because it's so macho and it's like this whole thing. And the thing that I was so struck by with you is how just everything was unfussy, but it was like the best that it could be, which, you know, like as far as I'm concerned, it was like, give her the Pulitzer of food. This is this is the thing. I think they call those James Beard awards. Like, I don't know. But I just remember like watching you cook. I think that there is something like so loving about that. Like, Anne and I talk about your cookbook, and it's also, like, a book that I love seeing in people's homes all the time. And the thing that I've noticed is that, you know, like, some cookbooks are definitely, um, you know, they're, like, status items. Like, I always see people with the, like, Oda Lange books, and I'm like, you don't even know how to, like, make soup. Like, you think that you, like, you think that you're going to make a recipe from here, you know? Like, all these, they're just, like, cookbooks that, like, people have to be seen or they do to challenge themselves. And the thing that I always love when I see your cookbook in somebody's house, they like have stains, they're in the kitchen, they're, and it's every level of, of cook. And the way that you are able to like teach people as you go, I think is incredibly generous. And that is also the thing that 
ultimately it, it changes families and it changes people and it teaches people a skill. It's not pretentious. It's not like machismo culture or whatever. And you were also able to do that on the TV show, which was so great. It has, you know, it has both the educational component that like, here's how you pick your vegetables, which I learned a lot from, which P.S., the secret to knowing what the difference between parsley and cilantro is one of them smells like Italian food and one of them smells like Mexican it's food. True. Okay, that's... Well, because I still, I still can't tell. I still can't tell when I pick them up. I'm like, oh, these leaves look the same. And then I just smell them. It's totally true. <laughs> what, it was confusing for me because in Iranian food, we use so many herbs. And mm-hmm. I only knew the Iranian names of all the herbs. And so I just was... To me, I associated them all with Iranian food. <laughs> it was just one big mess. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. That's a good way. Italian food or Mexican food? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, okay. I actually have a real question for you now. One of the things that, like, it definitely, like, comes across in the book a lot, but on the TV show, it's, like, just, like, hits you in so many ways if you're paying attention, is that one of the things that I, like, love about your work is that you talk about the pleasures of eating and the pleasure of food. It feels transgressive because of this, you know, like, the world that we live in. And I'm just like wondering if you can unpack that a little or talk about it more because I, yeah, I was like, we we watched your show while we were on tour. We talked about it. And the whole time I'm like, I'm so hungry. And also like just watching a, like a woman of color talk about like eating food is so hot. I was like, this is like, we're so excited here. <laughs> it, I, it's so funny because it didn't, there have been like many a think piece written about this. <laughs> didn't it didn't occur to me what occurred to me when I was doing when we were filming was here I am a person who's not stick thin eating and taking like and not and not ashamed about eating and taking a lot of joy in it and doing it on camera and it crossed my mind I was like oh am I going to receive criticism and am I going to get negative feedback because of the way I look and that I'm doing this and then I sort of had that thought and then I had to put it aside and was like, I really like ice cream, you know? <laughs> and so when I was like, what am I going to do? This is who I am. And I am, it's my job to do this. And I really love this. And also to me, I think there's a lot about me. I, I am an obsessive person who has spent a lot of time in the food world watching, observing a lot going on. I've observed so much of the machismo and so much of the elitism that is part of you know, the messaging of good cooking. I had to make a decision really early on that my message actually wouldn't be about local and organic, even though that's something that I subscribe to and practice in my own kitchen and in the way that, and when I cook for people and my own shopping, not only because I believe in it, you know, ethically, but also because it often tastes better. Usually it does taste better. I've watched that message for a long time, kind of, I watched Alice Waters stumble over that message and it get in her way you know, there's so much misogyny that she's subject to, period. But also, I, I, some of my favorite stories about her involve sharing this thing that she loves so much with everyone. And I know deep down inside that she's not an elitist. I know that for her, it's that she wants everyone to taste the delicious thing. And that that is for everyone. And that that's But I also understand and I pay a lot of attention to policy and, you know, structures of oppression. And I understand that, like, until larger changes are made, that those 
are going to come off as elitist messages. So for me, I believe like I'm going to start a one step sort of even more elementary and more rudimentary, which is I just want you to cook. I just want you to cook anything. <laughs> and even if you don't want to cook, then at least know what makes food taste good so that when you order your next burrito, you can think about, oh, when I'm adding salsa and sour cream, that's acid and fat and salt. And that's why it turns a bean and rice burrito, which is could be bland or plain or just, you know, really dry in your mouth, into something creamy and tangy and salty and fresh and delicious. And so you already innately know how to do that. I just want to give you the language to be able to do that and make better decisions when you're eating and when you're cooking, ultimately, so that you can create better relationships in your life and be happier and maybe like pass that on down the chain reaction to the next people. And so um, there are a lot of careful choices that I've made along the way about my voice, about my message, about what it is that I want to put into the world. And I think because I've been watching and doing this for so long, a lot of it's just natural now, you know, and um and also, I am really silly, and I do make a lot of mistakes, and I do, you know, that was another amazing thing, I think, one of the most healing things that's happened, I've spent a lot of time in therapy talking about this, is that the executives at Netflix who bought my show, they didn't buy it, like, in spite of me being brown and not skinny and, like, silly and making a mess when I cook. They bought it because I am that way. And so every step of the way when anything in the production process threatened to make me, you know, to tidy me up a little bit or to make me change something or, you know, maybe you should you be wearing that? <laughs> you know, they always stepped in and were like, no, this is not what we're here to, ch you know, we're here to capture who you are exactly as you are in all of your whole flawed glory, you know? And that is not a message I've received a lot of in my life. And to have like this like huge corporation, not only telling me that, but like betting on it, Honestly, like maybe I shouldn't live for that outside, <laughs> like uh, whatever praise and like, you know, affirmation, but it certainly has helped big time. And so I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not everything, but like it feels really good. And to me, I hope if I can do that and people can see that it's fun and delicious and not maybe as hard, then maybe they'll want to do it. And like all those little kids, all those little Samines out there, <laughs> maybe one of them will like be like, oh, I could do that too one day. Um. First of all, this is me holding a sign going, you are perfect to me. Um, I want so many little Samines cooking. that is happening right now that it's kind of mind-blowing and I don't know if you're feeling this but I'm feeling this like very acutely as an immigrant is just how much like our food has finally like crossed into the mainstream and it both like makes me happy like it makes me happy that you know like everybody is making za'atar it makes me happy that you know you can find like African spices everywhere that people know their way around injera 
But at the same time, it really bums me out. You know, it's like I just I remember that feeling of like being a kid who would like fight my mom about the lunchbox or be really embarrassed about some of the smells that were coming out of our kitchen or having to explain that to to other kids who were not like brown or immigrants. And so I it's been like an interesting struggle. And I wonder if you like feel some of that. I definitely do. Um, I definitely feel some pride and pleasure and that people are having, you know, in interest and to get to share these things. But rather than being bummed, I'm actually really angry about it. a lot of it. I'm really angry, not only on my own behalf as an Iranian American, but like for Mexicans and for, you know, people from all countries that are currently being vilified. And I'm like, wait a minute, you don't get our food without, like our food comes, you're like, we have to, <laughs> it's a package deal. <laughs> you get us and our food. And so that's one part of it. Like I have a lot of rage about that actually. And then I also have a lot of anger about appropriation. And I think, um, you know, like I grew up eating this Persian, Persian cooking is one of the most labor-intensive and time-consuming cuisines that there is in the world. My grandma always used to joke that it was invented to keep women in the kitchen, you know? <laughs> and so, <laughs> and and certainly it was how my mom spent the bulk of her time, and, I, and that is not lost on me. We had often drove two hours to go to like our favorite Iranian restaurants in Orange County from San Diego when I was growing up. And there were never any white people in there, you know? And now there's an amazing, actually, Persian restaurant in Brooklyn. So fresh, so good. And I went in there, actually, maybe a couple months ago. There had been already a series of articles written about it and about the proprietor. And she came over to my table, and I was like, I've never seen so many white people eating Iranian food, <laughs> you know? And that one, actually, I feel good about because it's an Iranian lady making it, and she's charging a lot of money, and she's making her money. But there are also a lot of sort of hipster restaurants making tadig, our crispy rice, and charging a lot of money for a little side dish of it when, you know, you could go a little two miles over to Westwood <laughs> in L.A. to the strip of Iranian restaurants and eat this stuff made by the actual people, you know, and maybe you don't get the fancy subway tiles in the, on the bathroom, in the bathroom or whatever, but I don't know. The idea that the money and the credit aren't going to the people is really what's upsetting to me. And I think also cultural appropriation is a really complicated discussion in general and specifically in food. And to me, as I think about it, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I think we as a, as a community, as a culture, don't, have a sophisticated enough vocabulary yet mm -hmm. to discuss these issues. So a lot of the time, like the term cultural appropriation gets slapped on something that maybe isn't tr strictly appropriation. And we sort of have this black and white, like good, bad thinking about like how a person shouldn't ever have the ability to cook something that's not from their own heritage. And I don't believe that at all. Um, but I do think credit and money and power are really important. And when you're taking something from people who have like historically been oppressed or colonized or only have had things taken from them, like that is a shameful thing that we need to be really careful about, so. Ugh, it's just, I mean, yeah. there's a lot. I'm glad that you like mentioned the vocabulary because you're right, in that appropriation culture and conversation, a lot of people just don't realize that like 
most of the food I would say that like you eat from my part of the world, like colonialism had a lot to do yeah. with. And so that in itself is, you know, the cuisine has changed. Or whenever I read like where crops are from, every single African crop is from South America. I'm just like, what did we eat before we like had boats? The whole thing is weird. But the other thing that I think about a lot specifically is about like gender and cooking because you're right like I like I think about my mom the bulk of my mom's time was spent in the kitchen like African food takes a long time to make all of the time even today like you see it women cook all the time and to see like male chefs be celebrated for things that their like moms and grandmas taught them is makes me want to flip the table a lot of time and and even like the language around it like I forget who was that one that like he got me too'd and literally his nickname was like the bad boy of pastry I'm like I don't need food from somebody who calls themselves the bad boy of pastry it is just like very frustrating like male chefs get celebrated for both their like character and also for just like things that women have literally been doing for millennia that they kind of have to do to feed their families I, you know, as somebody who is not in the food world, I wonder like how that conversation is going and if it is changing. Because when I turn my TV on, it feels like it is not changing. When I read about restaurants, it feels like it's not changing. As an insider, like, what do you think? <laughs> I have like a fireball of rage in my chest right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I have always thought and said that if I had... Like, if I were to go back and do another career, I would go back and get, like, do a PhD in gender studies and write about, like, gender in the kitchen, basically. Because to me, this is, I mean, you nailed it, right? For 10,000 years, basically, humans have been cooking. Like, that's essentially when we switched from, like, uh, hunter-gatherers to to farmers, to agriculture. And for 10,000 years, in most societies, I think there are some societies where it wasn't women who were always cooking, but in most societies, like men hunted and women cooked or men brought the food when women cooked. So for 10,000 years, <laughs> women have been turning what's available into things that are delicious and nutritious and feed their families. They've been spending the bulk of their time in the kitchen doing this work that for many years until like modern kitchens were invented was actually toxic, dangerous work. Like before there was ventilation in buildings, you know, that you would get black lung and die. And so all of the sort of grandma cooking, the nonna cooking, the peasant cooking that now like you go to the, you know, midtown and pay $40 for a pasta, like that comes from traditions where people had nothing else to eat and women were forced to make the most out of what was available to them. And about 250 years ago, maybe 300 if you want to round up, restaurants were invented. Professional cooking with money attached and glory and attention and critical fame and all that kind of stuff. And that became a men, man's space. And the first like professional cooks were men and this became a, a space that where women were not welcome. So for the bulk of human history, it's been women's work. And the minute that there was any opportunity for outside <laughs> <laughs> glory and money, it was suddenly a, a space not not open to women. And so... That's not lost on me at all. And then these kitchens were set up in the military model. Like they have military names, you know, the way that traditional French kitchens are set up. Let's not even talk about the fact that like restaurant cuisine is only like, you know, really the, like, sorry, I'm so upset right now. <laughs> I'm so worked up. <laughs> but then like, that, like, 
that also, I mean, this is also only in terms of like Western restaurant culture. So, which I came up in, in a very Western kitchen, which I believed and I was sort of taught that you weren't a real cook until you understood French cuisine and all of these Western traditions and that other countries' traditions and ways of doing things really had less or no value. So that's something that I'm still sort of processing a lot of rage about, but that's a separate conversation. But yeah, this idea that the only attention, money, et cetera, was for men was I, I like my, I'm mind boggled by that, that I'm mind boggled that we have allowed this to happen that this, I mean, whatever, that this has happened. And I don't know that it's changing. I do, I know that it's trying to, but it's a really intense system. And it, this, like to me, all bad things go back to capitalism. And so a big part of this, a big part of why oppressive kitchen structure is is allowed to go on is because restaurants are really, have really narrow margins just as businesses. It's a terrible business to be in. Like a really successful, famous restaurant will have maximum of 10% margin, but even that's like a really good one. And so usually you're like between two and 5%, you know, and many restaurants are failing and often they're like, um, yeah, so that's its own whole other, other situation. But so in order to make those narrow margins, you have to squeeze everything out of everything. You have to make stretch all of your ingredients. You have to use every bit of your chicken bones for chicken stock. And that's what, why restaurants are so efficient. But they're also really oppressive. They make people work really long hours and don't get paid overtime. And when there's a, that pressure is coming from the outside to this business, then from like every powerful person or pow- powerful part of the business, it's then like imposed on every less powerful person until it gets down to the dishwasher or the prep cook or the busser who is an immigrant and needs this job you know, or a woman who can't say no because she needs the three jobs to go home and, like, feed her kids. And so there, they are people who can't necessarily say anything about it or do anything about it, and then this whole thing continues because it's like, rests on the backs of really oppressed people. And so I don't know, you know, there might be some surface changes, and certainly I'm really glad and proud that, like, I can have this show that has brought you know, a whole new level of discussion and attention to it in certain ways. But also, I don't know what, I, it's, it's, a, it's a puzzle that I don't know that there's an answer to unless we address a lot bigger issues, you know? And it makes me really sad, really, really sad. I, I don't see a way through or around it. I'm going to talk about something that doesn't make me sad, which is all <laughs> of the work that you do. Um, what are uh, really common misconceptions that you think that like uh civilians uh have in the kitchen or uh-huh. about cooking in general oh that's a good one um i think people probably think that it has to be really complicated and hard to make something delicious i think for me a big big motivation to write the book and teach people how to cook which teaching came way before writing was I would go over to a friend's house or like we'd rent a a weekend house, you know, at the beach or whatever and buy whatever was at the grocery store and everyone would contribute their thing and I would make roasted cauliflower. And people would be like, they're like, I hate cauliflower, whatever, you know, and then we'd sit down to eat and they're like, what is this? You know, (laughs) and then they're like, what did you do to this? I was like, I did literally nothing. There's salt, olive oil, cauliflower. And uh, they're like, but I can't do this. And I said, no, no, you can do this. You probably are just putting too much cauliflower on your pan or 
not using enough salt or your oven is the wrong temperature, but anyone can do this. So I think people think that good food has to be really complicated. And that's a whole other discussion of, I think, again, this goes back to like vocabularies and understanding, but um, I think food, especially with Instagram and food TV and celebrity chef culture, which has really come about in the last 20 years, like since I started cooking, I think we get confused as humans about the difference between what we're cooking at home and what so-and-so is doing on their Instagram or in their restaurant. And that somehow we hold up ourselves up to that standard. It's kind of the difference between like clothes and fashion, you know, is like cooking and cuisine or something like that. And even restaurants as a, as a restaurants like comprise of a, a huge spectrum and fulfill a lot of different roles in modern life. And so a chef who's like, using all the crazy tools and making the foams and playing the food puns, that's a, that's a creative expression. That's an art. And that's something totally different than like the workaday bowl of spaghetti and meatballs that you just want to go and sit down and eat with your friends and feel cared for at the table. And so to compare them and to put them on the same like sort of like best of lists to me is a mistake. And to like extend that to then compare ourselves to either of those, to somebody whose profession it is to make food, is, is it's not fair. Like, we're not set up for that. So I think we have to learn as regular humans to not constantly compare ourselves to this other stuff and just loosen up <laughs> and learn how to make, like, a couple good things. And then, and and this really is something from, like, the, I, I believe that my work is sort of the next, like, chapter of Alice's work is, like, I honestly believe that if you have never made a chicken and you roast a chicken and you're like, wow, that was really good. Like, that was super good. And you bought yourself a Safeway chicken or whatever. And you're like, well, why are all those people, like, why is she always talking about organic stuff? Or why is that thing at the farmer's market? Maybe the next time I'll buy the one more expensive thing. And then you're like, ooh, that tastes even more chickeny, <laughs> you know, or strawberries. Like, why organic strawberries or heir heirloom strawberries rather than the ones in the clamshell at the, you know, bodega? Well, those ones are bred to like last for three weeks and they look nice, but they don't taste like anything. So then you taste the delicate farmer's market strawberry and your mind explodes because it tastes almost like artificial flavor of strawberry. <laughs> and you've never understood that before. And so the next time you're like, I want that. So I think like by empowering people and by teaching them that they can have it, sure, like maybe some people can't afford the thing, but maybe then some other people will be motivated to buy the next thing. And that is how we ultimately support small local economies and then create these this like demand for this stuff. But it's not by telling people that that's the only way or that you're no, no good if you're not buying the fanciest, you know, $8 pound of beans or whatever. <laughs> and so, again, I didn't give you any like super duper tips on cooking, but there's a whole show about that. So you can watch. <laughs> um, Store-bought is fine, yeah. as someone says oh, all that. the there's time. There's a really good Instagram account called Store-bought is fine. There's yeah. an Instagram account called Store-bought is fine? Yeah. Okay, I yeah. will look into it. Um, thank you, Ina. Um, yeah. uh, what so what are you doing next? What's the next book? What is the next season of the TV show? Can I just say if anybody at Netflix is listening to this, four episodes is not enough. <laughs> Give the people a full season order, okay? We want Grey's Anatomy 21 episode style because it's just it's just not enough. It was like enough that I was like I need more of this. And then, you know, and then they like offer you the neck, you know. I was like what am I going to do with four episodes? Is this a British crime TV show? I don't have time for this. So, 
I'm wondering, like, what do you have next? And also, like, how you think about your work at scale, really? Mm-hmm. And the, because oh. because you are, you know, like, you're making things, but also, like, you're teaching people things. Yeah. And so where, like, where is this going next? The Samin yeah. Empire. Samin? Samin. <laughs> <laughs> we, I definitely want to make more something. I'm not sure if it'll be more of this show or a different show, but I really enjoyed having a different format for storytelling. And I feel like I am good at it. It felt like a skill that I strangely like had inside of me. That's really fun. And I look forward to figuring out what the right show is. Like, I think we had some thoughts before this show came out about what the next one could be. But the reception, partly, I think, because of Anthony Bourdain's passing, partly because there haven't really been any female travel show hosts. It's even rarer to have someone who looks like me be a host of anything, I think, because of that. Some thoughts are crossing our mind that hadn't before about maybe we should sort of reconsider doing more travel or I don't know what. So, but I have had, my brain is a scrambled eggs right now. So I need to have a little calm down time to figure out. And trust me, the idea of scaling and figuring that out, that's like something I'm trying to wrap my mind around. And I've actually been talking to some like women entrepreneurs to figure out how do you, you know, I'm not quite radical enough to like totally reject capitalism. So if I'm going to exist within it, then how do I create a business that's not going to like wipe me out emotionally and energetically and also not like rape the world and the environment and support the people who work for me and also allow us to do fun, beautiful, magical things that inspire people. And I don't think it's impossible. I just think I need to learn a little bit more about business or find the right business people to work with. And I mean, I think where it's ultimately heading probably Again, none of this is like fully thought out, but I, I think I do want to eventually maybe have a production company so I can both make more shows, you know, be in more shows, but also give other people voices and put other people's stories on the screen. And then um, I definitely want to write more. But all those things take time. And if I and I also know just because of who I am and decisions that I've made, and also like I work with the New York Times, and because I work at the New York Times, like I can't have sponsor I won't I can't like brand sponsorships and so and so that's the one source of income I'm never gonna have and then there's like I already decided a long time ago I'm never gonna be a person who like puts my face on pots and pans and sells those there's already like so many wonderful pots and pans in the world and so (laughs) so if I'm not gonna have that source of income then what it feels like is like all the income is like contingent on me and I'm the I'm the product but then that's really limiting because what can just one person do? So I know I have it's it's a priority for me to figure out how do I like lift a whole bunch of other people up so that I'm not the only brown person in cooking that everyone's looking at, you know, <laughs> and that I don't want to. It's going to get lonely. It already is pretty lonely. And I'm already like doing a lot of behind the scenes um, ultimatums. <laughs> like if you don't, and you know, diversify this panel, I'm not coming. Or if you don't do this, I'm not doing this. So I'm, and I'm trying to figure out how do I really make that part of my business plan and bring like really make an inclusive workspace. But um, I don't know. I'm still new at a lot of this and I'm, I'm wary of like taking too big of a bite of too many different things. So I need to have like a little calm time to figure out what makes the most sense to do next. But probably I, I in my heart, I think it'll probably be more more TV stuff next. Yeah. Who are the other brown people in cooking that we should be following across all of the platforms? Okay, there's a wackadoodle young amazing writer named Priya Krishna who's writing 
for Bon Appetit and the New York Times and the New Yorker. And she wrote this amazing piece earlier this year about the butter chicken lady. It was about this woman who wrote the Indian Instant Pot Cookbook in the New Yorker. You have to read that, Priya Krishna. Also, Tejal Rao, who is my colleague at the Times, she writes a column for the magazine, and she's also the new West Coast food critic for all of like California and the entire West Coast. She is just a magical, magical writer and has a wonderful palate. She's so great. I love Nick Sharma, whose book Season just came out, and he just has a really beautiful story and just a great relationship with spices. I love Korsha Wilson, who has a podcast called Hungry Society, and I think she's a really thoughtful interviewer. Um, I don't know. They're just, my God, I could go on for like 45 more minutes, but that's probably good for now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this makes me really happy, Samin. I I just, I want more Samin all the time, but I really appreciated like, you know, what you were also saying about you being the product. It's not sustainable. And this is another way that like, hetero like patriarchy and capitalism are a scam is that you think that you're a unique snowflake but really being the only means that you become a token very fast Mm -hmm. and it's not cool but i just we love you here at call your girlfriend i want to see you do more things all the time at your own pace and also i just hope that like everybody listening to this is also so inspired to ask for the things that they want for i loved you going through that you know, through like your career arc and just seeing, you know, you you said a lot of things about yourself, but I think that one thing that, um, you know, I, I hope that you know this about yourself is that you are somebody who like, you ask for what you want and you do the best fucking job at it. And it is so, so, so inspiring to see. So thank you for coming on CYG today. I'm growing. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Life dream come true. <laughs> Ugh, Samin. <laughs> the queen. The queen of everything. Give her 26 seasons and many movies. It's all I want. 100%. Can I tell you one thing I failed at? Tell me. I forgot to ask her what her favorite snack is. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, sorry. What? I was so in love and just like smitten. And also I was, you know... It's not every day you meet your sheroes, okay? So I like I forgot, but I'm gonna call her right now and ask her to remedy that. I'll fix it. Okay. Also, though, I feel like asking a f- like someone who's an expert about food to name their favorite snack is like when people ask me about my favorite book because my answer is always like for what you know like I don't have like a favorite book for everything. Totally. It's like similarly, I'm like mm, your favorite snack for what? Anyway, right. we'll see how she answers. Okay, we'll see. See you on the internet and in the kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac.